This is episode 495 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. One of the great longings of those the Lord used mightily in the last church age is this fullness or baptism of the Holy Spirit. No, we're not talking about some loopy believers today who claim something that their life doesn't exhibit. We're talking about the heroes of old, people like D.L. Moody or Charles Spurgeon or Andrew Murray and Oswald Chambers, Charles Finney, Amy Carmichael, and so many others. Each of these great servants of God testifies to their deep longing and ultimate baptism of the Holy Spirit that they claim was the source and power for all that God did through them and led them to what they called the higher Christian life. But what about us? And what about the church today? How does our view and participation in church impact our receiving this higher Christian life, as they called it? Does it help or does it hurt? In this episode, we'll look at the church today and compare it with what we see in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. And you may come to the troubling conclusion that the modern, Western, contemporary idea of the church today may be the greatest hindrance to experiencing the higher Christian life. So join with us as we discover more about the higher Christian life and learn how to leave Laodicea behind. In the beginning, when you come in, there's always a verse that's up here um, to kind of kind of set the mood for everybody before we have our praise and worship. And then after we have our praise and worship, I throw this back up here again. This is, of course, the last two verses in that beautiful section in the book of Acts chapter 2 where it talks about what the early church did. It says, so continuing, and the key word here is daily, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. So They met in what they knew as church at that time, the Jewish temple, and then they got together for meals in the evening. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people that saved and lost. And the Lord added to the church, gosh, there's that word again, daily, those who were being saved. They continued daily, singly focused in one accord with Christ as king, and the Lord added daily to their numbers. For the last couple of weeks, I've been sharing with you how to prepare for the coming persecution. And we basically talked about these items, that persecution is an integral part of Christianity. I think I showed that to you with several verses, especially going through Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus sends his disciples out, spends 11 verses telling them what wonderful things they will do, heal the sick, raise the dead, all that kind of stuff, cleanse lepers. Then he spends the next 20 verses telling them what to expect when they go out into a lost world, empowered by the Spirit like that, you will face trials and tribulations and sufferings and persecutions. Since we haven't experienced that much in America, we have a tendency of not thinking that it's true. Just those people over there who are not as cultured as we are, the suffer persecution. But persecution is to be expected. As a matter of fact, if you look at the passage that we looked at a few weeks ago, 
all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, then persecution becomes an indicator of how we are spiritually, just like spiritual fruit. Good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Bad tree cannot produce good fruit. You will know my disciples by their fruits. If we are not suffering persecution, according to the passage we unpacked a few weeks ago, it could be an indicator that we really don't have that deep of desire to live godly in Christ, because if we did, the promise is we will suffer persecution. So how do we prepare for that? How do we prepare for persecution? We, I gave you 12 things that we need to focus on. We talked about two two weeks ago. We've talked about two more last week. But I want to switch focus today and kind of go to the deeper heart issue of what we need to do to prepare for persecution. And uh, the way the Lord revealed this to me was really quite eye-opening. And it's the fact that church as we know it. Now, I want you to think back when you first started going to church. With me, I, my parents brought me to church as an infant. My dad was always involved in church. Uh, my mother and my father were nominal Christians, but they were never, my father was not a Christian, but my mom was a nominal Christian, but nevertheless, they were faithful in church. And so I was dragged to a Southern Baptist church from the earliest memories that I have. I was brought up in Sunday school and we had the Lottie Moon offering and Annie Armstrong, whoever those people were. And, and I remember church back then. And the music was different and the preaching was different and people dressed different and the facility was somewhat different. But nevertheless, the, the motif of church is exactly as it is today. And listen very carefully. It is designed to fail. Church is designed to, the way we do it today, to breed lackluster, lukewarm, apathetic Christians. It's just the way the system is set up. When, I, when the Lord really revealed that to me, this was my response to him. God, don't you think that's a little harsh? Well, no. Why don't you compare church today and then what we've all grown to love and accept and, and, and view as norm versus church in the book of Acts, church in the New Testament time, and tell me if you see a difference. And so I started thinking about church today, and I started thinking about what we do today and what the focus is today, and really what we've done my entire life versus how it was in the book of Acts, and it really became eye-opening that is really designed to keep us, maybe I shouldn't say designed, it wasn't a predetermined design to keep us apathetic, but the way it's set up breeds apathy. Think about church today. When we talk about the word church, nobody thinks about church as you. They don't think about us as the church, the called out ones that happen to come into a building because church is a building, it's an institution, it's a tax-exempt entity, it's this church and that church, it's the church on the street corner. We've taken the word ecclesia, which means the called out one, and focused it on some sort of inanimate building. And speaking of that building, everything that happens in church happens in some neutral building that none of us have ownership in. None of us. Uh, we go and we tithe, and they build this building, and as long as we're there, we can partake in it. There are some rules, and as long as we're, we don't go there anymore, we don't. And the, the goal of a church, if you talk to a, a church planter or somebody going to start a church, they can't wait until they can get their own building. 
Because once they get a building, a storefront, or they take over some other building, then all of a sudden they have credibility. Well, where does your church meet? Well, it meets in a barn on somebody's property, Vic's property or our property here. Well, that's not really a church. A church has got to look like a church. It's got to be on the corner of Maine and Maple downtown. That's what a church is. And so members of a church, they meet in some neutral building. And all the ministry and all the fellowship among the church takes place in some neutral building. And all the relationships that are built in a church are built in some neutral building. So as long as you're part of the church and you go to that building and involved in ministry and fellowship, then you have friends. But if you move yourself away from that church, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but most of the friends that you had in the church that you left aren't friends anymore. Kind of like the friends you have at work. I work at Bank of America, and I've got a bunch of really close friends at Bank of America. I've worked there for 17 years. These are my best friends. I see them every day, eight to nine hours a day. And then I leave or they leave. And what? We say hi on Facebook now and then. We maybe send them a Christmas card. But the relationship's not there anymore because it's not. it, it, was, it was all built on this neutral building. When it comes to a church, church usually doesn't function like a like a New Testament church where you trust the Lord to meet your needs. A church functions like a corporation. It has a top-down leadership. You've got shareholders, which is the congregation who vote on certain matters. You've got committees that are made up to handle administrative things. You've got uh, a board of directors, elders or deacons or, or somewhat of that nature. You have reports that have to go out. You have budgets that you have to meet. We Here's the budget for the church. Therefore, we need to step up our tithing. I mean, I'm pretty much churches kind of run like a building because you've got a note that you need to pay and salaries and expenses and stuff of that nature. I mean, that's just the way church is. When you come to the worship service, church is kind of like this. It usually has a time of a musical performance. When I was growing up, they called that special music. Do you remember that? This is special music. Well, why is it special music? It's because nobody else sings, just this special music sings, or the band plays a song or something of that nature. Church today is musically is better than it was when I grew up, but uh, church today has kind of like a mini concert and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's great, and people sing. And, and then you've got this time of teaching in church. And, and the idea of the message today is not to preach about holiness, to convict people of their sin, to make them feel the, the unction of the Holy Spirit to the point that they want to repent. In other words, it's, it's designed to make you feel good. It's pretty much about you. And so the messages are about how you're loved and you're the head, not the tail. And, and you got all the blessings and it's all about you because we want you to keep coming to get affirmed because we need your tithe to pay for the ticket to the seat that you're sitting in in order to keep the institution functioning. Speaking of the institution and the church building, every one of them, even when I was growing up, every one of them is designed like an educational institution and not a family. You have the stage and you have all this, even here, you have all the seats fanned around so that we can watch what's going on on the stage. We're looking at the back of somebody's head or looking over them to see what's going on. But in a family setting, we would never set things up this way. Suppose we were having a big family reunion. 
would we all eat our meals looking at the back of somebody's head? Or would we actually put things in a circle so we can have face-to-face conversation? This is a family. It's not a performance. Do you remember the times that I did that here? You come, Everybody would come in the door, and all the chairs are in a circle, and everybody panicked. We don't want to look at everybody. We just want to do the show. I mean, it, it was... It was shocking because none of us have ever been into a situation like that where it's designed more as a family. Let me tell you the saddest part about church in general is the teaching is designed to minister to the C-level Christian. Again, what I'm talking about is if, you, if there were students in school, you got your A-levels, your B-levels, your C-levels, your Ds, and then you got, do they even do Fs anymore? That's the, the F Christians. But if we, if, we, if we keep the teaching at an A level so that we can, people have the B's and C's rise up to the A, we're going to lose the D's and F's and some of the C's. So here's what we'll do. We'll lower it down to a C level so then everybody's kind of happy. The B's and A's are kind of bored, but they're going to get it on their own. And the D's and F's aren't so far out, they can, they can somehow muster it up to a C. And so the design of a lot of the teaching that goes on today is to kind of dumb it down, to even take difficult truths and make it kind of funny or or something of that nature so we don't lose anybody. But there's no growth. As a matter of fact, most churches are deemed successful by participation, not by measurable spiritual growth. I can't tell you the number of people that uh, I've talked to over the years that are worship leaders. Hey, how was worship today? Oh, it was great. The people, it was just great. We really worshiped today. How did you know? Well, because they had their eyes closed and their hands raised. Okay, but they, they do that at every concert I've ever been at. You know, they did the little big lighters too and all that kind of stuff. They do it at every single concert I've ever been at. So why is that? worship. Well, because that's what it is. They were all participating. They were all singing. Hence, they must be worshiping. This is church. The focus on a church, if you've ever been in leadership of a church, the focus on the church is never on the individual believer. It's on the institution. Well, I, that's, that's going to give our church a bad name. That Our church isn't comfortable with that. Our church could face liability because of that. It's always the lesser serving the institution. And if by some chance what's good for you is not good for the institution, usually it's not the institution. It changes. It's you go somewhere else because it's, it's feeding that monster. We have decided that what we're going to do is hire paid professionals, men especially, to do the things that I don't have time to do at home. The Bible says that it's a man's job to spiritually lead his wife. Well, I ain't got time because I'm too busy leading people at work. It's a man's job to to raise his kids in the fear and admonition of the Lord and a woman assists a man in that. I don't have time for that kind of stuff. So I'm going to hire a youth director. I'm going to hire children's church. I'm going to hire somebody else, some paid professional, to do the things that, that I don't want to do. Today is the big day of marketing in church. How many... How many church logos have you seen on the back of somebody's elevation? It's a classic one. You know, they got the, the little orange thing and then the name. I know exactly what church they go to. And we always market the church. Very seldom do we ever market Christ. I mean, I, I'm pulled up behind you in a 
in a, a line at a traffic light and I'm looking at the back of your car and on the back of your car, you've got a billboard of who you are. I see the little emblems here of you and your husband and four kids and three dogs and, and I got that. And maybe I'll see a Trump sticker on, on your car and maybe I'll see a picture of the church that you go to or the fat, fact that you go to fit the fight or, or belong to some sort of club and on that billboard, if we're going to put anything religious-wise, the church wants you to put their logo. Never about Christ. And when it comes to preaching, if I want you to come back, we're going to preach about your felt needs. Oh, do you feel maligned? Do you feel forsaken? Do you feel like the world is just spinning out of control? Do you feel lonely? Well, Jesus will meet every one of your felt needs. And so I tell you all about that. And I feel so good about myself. I can't wait to come back and do it all again. Now, here's the scary part. Church meets usually one time a week on Sunday. For most Christians, they only come on Sunday. And most of them don't come every single Sunday. Our service lasts for, I don't know, two hours because I preach a long time. Most churches only last an hour or an hour and 15 minutes. So all the religious instruction, all the corporate worship time is going to be handled on one day whenever you come on that day for less than two hours. Sometimes, sometimes there's a midweek service. Sometimes there's small groups. Sometimes there's a Tuesday night Bible study. Sometimes there's something else to, to kind of grow deeper in your faith. And some people go to that, but statistically, it's less than 5%. One in 20 of the people who go on Sunday actually return for another hour or an hour and a half during the week. Why is that? Well, it's just church. It's just something I've added to my schedule. My kids have soccer practice five days a week for two hours a day. I faithfully go to that in a game on Saturday. But as far as adding church to that, I don't know if I can, I can do that. And when it comes to the leaders of a family, which is men, women are far more likely to participate in church, to be faithful in church, to do things about church than men are. When, and this is just church in general. When prayer groups form, they're usually women's prayer groups. If men want to form a group, somebody's got to have a meal, and it's got to be a big meal, or we got to go fishing or hunting or something of that nature. But just to come together and pray, men don't have time for that. We're not counting the coronavirus this last year, but the statistics I got from 2018 say that the average student in North Carolina spends 6.75 hours in public school not counting homework. And the average church member goes two Sundays a month, spends 37 and a half hours in church in an hour and a half service and over a thousand hours in school, not counting homework. And then we're wondering why when our kids get to be teenagers or when they graduate from high school, we lose them that they want nothing to do with church anymore. They go to a secular college after they've been trained by the educational system, and all we have done is thrown little seeds on the ground, hoping they will catch it a couple hours a week. It is designed to fail. It is designed to, to just be something we add to our life 
rather than it being something that pulsates and permeates with the Holy Spirit that we do on a daily basis. I mean, this is the church I've grown up with. Have you grown up with it? We've made a few changes here, but the fact is primarily church is still church. So Lord, how did we miss the boat here? How, what was it like in the beginning? What did you design church to be like? And, and how have we relegated it to the, the back burner and just something we add on to it? I mean, can you give me a picture of church in the New Testament? Well, sure. Verse we just looked at. Early church has just been born. 3,000 people saved, and many of them don't even speak the same language. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, every day the church went out for their mission. And their mission was not to buy a house. Their mission was not to advance in their company. Their mission was to be an emissary of the Lord Jesus Christ and win a lost and dying world to him. Holy Spirit had come upon them. They were commanded by Christ to be witnesses of him with power from on high. And that's exactly what they did. Continuing daily with one accord in the temple and then breaking bread from house to house. There were no church friends and other friends. There were only church friends because everybody else was against them. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And again, the Lord added daily to those that were being saved. Why? Well, because they were witnesses. We occasionally do witnessing. And we only do witnessing when we feel guilty about it, but they were witnesses. Persecution took place. All of a sudden, they were commanded that you can't preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. They said, we ain't going to follow that rule. Fine, next time we arrest you, we're going to beat you. We're going to torture you. We're going to just plummet you, and we're going to take your bloodied bodies back to the church and say, hey, this is what happens if you continue with this Jesus. And they agreed with him. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So departing from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name, and daily, back again to daily, and in every house, every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. We, we, don't, we don't like people to come over to our house because, you know, our house is dirty or I got dogs or, you know, it's, it's, it's just not really nice and everything. So we, we live in our world and you live in your world and those worlds never come together. And so therefore we're going to go to a neutral building that they didn't have to somehow worship together. And then I don't mind going to your house, but you can't come to my house. And that's not the way church was. That's not the way family is. That's one of the reasons why years ago we tried to take vacations together. We tried to do things together. We tried to move from this building and from Vic's building into homes. And we've been talking about that forever, doing that. And again, again, a couple ladies have said, hey, let's pray in my house or let's have a ladies Bible study here. But men, nothing, nothing. We're just not interested in doing that. That's not how the early church was. Acts chapter 17. This is what Paul is doing. It says, Now while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols, like our cities are today. Therefore he reasoned in a synagogue 
with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. All right, that's on Saturday. I got that. And in the marketplace, at Walmart, at Best Buy, at Costco, at his job daily, actually with those who happened to be there, with anybody who came his way, because that was his job. His job was not to make a lot of money being you know, an insurance agent. His job is to use that job as an insurance agent to tell other people about Christ. Well, if I do that, I'll lose my job. Hence, persecution. Hence, suffering, trials and tribulations. It is what it is. We don't view it that way anymore because no, church is just church. I don't want to tell them about Jesus. I'll just invite them to come to church and get the hired holy guy to do that. Acts 19. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months. Watch this now. And during that time, some people got saved. He calls them disciples. So some people are saved now with his preaching. And I'll come back next Sunday and I'll give you a quarterly and you can, you know, watch a podcast, listen to a podcast. That's really all you need. Three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Again, it's always about the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, Paul withdrew. And he departed from them and withdrew the disciples. Really? Well, I thought these guys had jobs. They did church on the side. No, they did jobs on the side because growing in Christ and being an emissary of him was most important. And he reasoned daily with them in a school of Tyrannius. He worked, and then he would go over and reason with them daily. Every single day, these new believers, wherever they were, whatever they do, would meet with Paul because it was important daily to understand what God is doing. And he continued this for two years. Can you imagine what those Christians must have been like? Well, kind of like Christians we have today, they get saved and go to church for two years and can't even memorize the uh, books of the Bible. Hey, where's, uh, where's the book of Hezekiah? Oh, no, it's not in there. Oh, sorry. I just recognized the name. We teach our kids to memorize verses, but adults, we, we struggle with that. Acts chapter 20, almost done here. And when they had come to him, they said, now this is when Paul is telling the elders at Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem, this is how I ministered with you while I was there. You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Nevertheless, I kept nothing back from you that was helpful. I told you everything. I proclaimed it to you. And I taught you not only publicly on Sunday mornings, Tuesday night Bible studies, but from house to house. When we got together, it was for meals and about the Lord. When we got together, it was, it was for meals and to tell other people about Jesus. When we got together, it was for mutual edification because nothing else matters than that. And to me, this was the most sobering picture of church Ever. And it's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where Paul is talking to them about graduate level stuff regarding the abomination of desolation, regarding the coming of the Antichrist, and the restrainer being taken away, all the stuff that we go, wow, that's, that's really confusing. And here's what he says Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ 
and a gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by a spirit or by a word or by a letter, as if from us, as though the day of the Lord had come. The church was being attacked. There was somebody that gave some prophetic utterance. There was a counterfeit letter from Paul that was sent back there. Somehow the church was being attacked. And Paul says, don't be upset about that. Let me tell you the facts that are going to happen before the Lord returns. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, the apostasy. And the man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, is revealed the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself upon all that is called God or his worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That's presupposing you understand Daniel about the abomination of desolation. We would spend weeks going through that. I just can't get it straight in my mind. Look what he says. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Well, Paul, how long did you preach there? Well, not two hours a week, one day a week, and half time for most people who don't show up. But I was only in Thessalonica for a maximum of 21 days. When Paul got there, the, first, the oldest convert, assuming he won someone to the Lord the first day he pulled into Thessalonica, 21 days, no later than 21 days later, Paul was chased out and never went back. He sent letters to see how they were doing. The oldest Christian there was 21 days old. And Paul says, don't you remember me telling you about these things when I was there? No, we're still struggling with John 3.16. We're still struggling with the fact that Jesus loved. What are you doing? None of this can be done on a weekly basis. None of it. Therefore, we've been Christians for years and years and years and still don't understand this stuff. When we make church and worship and religious training and studying the Bible and add on to our life, we end up like we are. When we make it our life, well, then the life in this world will suffer, probably. But then our God is too small, and like we talked about last week, we don't have eternity in view. It's not about making money and retiring with a big bank account. It's about dying with a tremendous amount of spiritual fruit, so the Lord says, well done, good and faithful servant. It's about living lives of integrity for our children, so they look at us and go, I know my dad was a godly man, because every morning at 5 o'clock he would get up, and I would hear him in the room on his knees praying for me. I can't tell you. I don't think I ever in my life have heard somebody say that about their father. But if you will read the testimonies of the men who lived 100 years ago, that just that kind of faith, that kind of example is rampant in all their testimonies. Because we don't care. We think that since the Holy Spirit came upon us, that I've got everything I want, and so therefore I've got all the power I need, I'm okay, and I used to be a 10, now I'm a 6, but that, that's okay because i got other things I'm working on rather than this. When I would, uh, and when we had the men's group, um, and I would always ask the question, hey, uh, how's your spiritual life? Well, not as good as it was last week. Last week it was an age, probably less than that. Why? It's been a busy week. What does that mean? 
Well, it means I had so many other things I chose to do rather than work on my spiritual life. Therefore, I'm suffering the consequences now. And we're okay with that. Because in our culture, we applaud the busy man who works the busy week and makes a lot of money. And we never exalt the man who is so desirous of a deeper relationship with Christ that he can't think of anything else. But why is all this important? Tuesday, I shared a testimony of uh, Charles Finney, the ancient preacher who was paramount of importance in starting the uh, second great awakening in our country, as Jonathan Edwards was the first great awakening. And it talked about an experience he had subsequent to salvation where the Holy Spirit came into his life and empowered him to be different. Well, we don't like to talk about things like that today because that makes us think of Benny Hinn and these charismatic guys. And, you know, we don't want anything to do with that. But sometimes we forget that everybody, it appears, that God used in a profound way. And I always choose my heroes from the Philadelphia church age. George Mueller and uh, Spurgeon and Moody and people of that nature. That every one of those people had some deep encounter with Christ that is missing in the church today. Like this man. This guy is no slouch. This is Dwight L. Moody, an evangelist that turned the world upside down. He, he preached and he worked hard and he was a very kinetic figure. He began revivals in America and went over to, um, to England with uh, Iris Sankey, his song leader, kind of like it was with Billy Graham and George Beverly Shea. And if you will read the testimonies of the people who lived in the 1800s, you would find that most all of them were somehow impacted by this man. We would call him a fundamentalist conservative. He's not a loopy, charismatic kind of guy that we shun today. And I want to read to you his testimony about what changed in his life. This is from the words of Dwight L. Moody. I can myself go back almost 12 years and remember two holy women who used to come to my meetings. It was delightful to see them there, for when I began to preach, I could tell by the expressions on their faces they were praying for me. At the close of the Sabbath evening services, they would say to me, we've been praying for you. And I said, why don't you pray for the people? They answered, you need power. I need power, I said to myself. Well, I thought I had power. I had the largest Sabbath school. They call it Sunday school today. Large Sabbath school and the largest congregation in Chicago. There were some conversions at that time, and I was in a sense satisfied. But right along, these two godly women kept praying for me, and their earnest talk about, quote, the anointing for special service set me to thinking. I asked them to come and talk with me, and we got that on our knees. They poured out their hearts that I might receive the anointing of the Holy Ghost. And there came a great hunger in my soul. I knew not what it was. I began to cry as never before. That hunger increased. I really felt that I did not want to live any longer if I could not have this power for service. I kept on crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Then came the great Chicago fire, and everything D.L. Moody had built was burnt to the ground. So we had to go back east to New York and and try to raise funds again to rebuild the ministry in Chicago. Here's what he says. My heart was not in the work of begging. 
I could not appeal. I was crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Not that I lost my church, but God would fill me with his spirit. Well, one day in New York City, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. Paul had an experience of which he didn't speak for 14 years. I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. The story is that he was walking down the streets of New York City asking the Lord to fill him or baptize him with the Holy Spirit and God began that process. So he turned into a man's shop, overwhelmed almost to the point of bursting into tears and asked if there's a private place he could go pray. And the man says, I've got a bedroom upstairs. So he went upstairs alone and he said these waves and waves and waves of just love and the Holy Spirit came upon him that he told the Lord, if you don't stop, I will surely die. Then he continues. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths, yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessing experience if you should give me all the world. It would be small dust in the balance. There is more to this that I will be sharing with you tomorrow, but I'll get back to that in a second. There is something kinetic, something more powerful, something life-changing that many of us have run from or avoided or haven't put the time in because we are satisfied with having church in Christ as a part of our life rather than church in Christ being all of our life. So Lord, I asked, what do I do? If we're supposed to meet daily, if we're supposed to to follow you daily. I mean, what do we do? Well, here's what he instructed me to do. Starting tomorrow, I'll be sending you out a audio and a teaching that will be continuing this on a daily basis. You will have it to the best of my ability. You will have it when you wake up in the morning so that we can all be on the same page and start looking at the material that leads into a deeper spiritual life together on a daily basis. So please make sure I have your email address. I'll give it to Karen before you leave today. Uh, we're going to continue church, but not gathering here because everybody has lives. We're going to be continuing church to the best of our ability on a daily basis by just sending this out. We're going to be looking at the need for renewal in our lives, for spiritual renewal, to experience something that'll change our life. The people and the Philadelphia church age called it a deeper Christian life experience. Jesus called it the abundant life, the abundant life, the life that beats all life. And we're going to learn what we need to do to acquire that. And hopefully, if you'll take your time, we're going to do it together beginning tomorrow. We'll talk more about it on Sunday, but it's going to be a continuation. Because what happens is, you know, if you come every other week, then you miss, there's no continuity. And I've got so much after a week that I want to share that it's, it's like drinking from a fire hose and it's way too much, you know, to, to give at one particular time. And so what we're going to do is we're going to do this on a daily basis. And I'm asking you to join with me in this. But before we do, I need to make some assumptions. You need to ask some questions about yourself. Assumption one, I'm going to have to assume that you're already a believer. 
that you're already regenerated by the Holy Spirit and united to Jesus by living faith. If that's not the case, you have a serious issue that needs to be dealt with today, that I am truly a believer. The reason why I say this is a lot of people come to church for a long time and they don't get saved until later on in life. They think they're a Christian, but it doesn't have really that big of impact in their life. And so therefore, want to make sure that you're a believer in Christ. Assumption two, that you accept his word as the authoritative, immutable, eternally true word in all matters of life. And not only do you accept it, but you have to learn that you must obey it because it's not something to be trifled with. If God's word says this, and you disagree with it, you're wrong, he's not. And to go your way and not his way is sin. Assumption number three, that you're conscious of your past failures. I certainly am conscious of mine. You know, when we come in here, and if I ask, where are you at spiritually? And anybody in here is less than a 10. A 10 is simply the closest you've been to the Lord at some point in time in your past that there's a time in your life that you were closer to Jesus than you are now, that's a failure. It's a failure. It's stepping back. It's, it's being satisfied with something lukewarm. There was a time when I was so hot for you that I was closer to you than I've ever been. When was that? 1987. Where are you at now? Eh, I'm six, seven, eight, it's right in there. It's okay. It's no big deal. That's a sin. That's, that's a failure. They were consciously aware of our past failures, and we don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to live a lackluster, lukewarm Christian life. We must recognize that. You know, Jesus comes and says, I will bring you refreshing, but you and I are willing just to be thirsty all the time, and we're satisfied with being thirsty. Nothing will happen. I want more. If there is more to this Christian life, that what you're experiencing right now and I'm experiencing right now, how foolish it is of us to wait one more day and just be satisfied with something less than what God has promised us. Fourth assumption, if you are tired of past failures, that you are willing to make a commitment, no matter the cost, whatever the suffering God ordains, whatever is necessary to become more like Jesus. If you say, well, I will, as long as it doesn't affect me financially, I promise you, Satan will make sure it affects you financially. I will, as long as I don't lose some friends of mine. I will, unless it takes away my time watching football games or playing video games and stuff that I want to do. I will, as long as it doesn't cost me anything in this world, you are doomed. Nothing will happen. Nothing will change. You have to hunger for it like a a deer panting for water. And if so, if these assumptions are true, there's an incredible adventure that you and I will join together. But it takes a concrete commitment. Let me give you an example. Actually, two examples. Um, this week, one of some of the things we're going to look at, and I'm not going to spend time with that, but we're going to talk about holiness and what it means to be holy and the benefits of being holy, we're going to talk about, I mean, because the scripture clearly says without holiness, you will not see God. And holiness in our own actions is some of the hardest things to do. And by the way, holiness is much more than living righteously. Holiness, true, the true definition of it is God setting you apart for a particular purpose. 
but we will talk about that this week. But in order for this to happen, you have got to make some commitments in your own heart, what you're willing to give the Lord. I was looking at some histories of great people who did wonderful missionary endeavors and ministry endeavors back 100 years ago, and every one of them made some sort of concrete commitment. There were two of them that really spoke to me. The first one was the Punjab Prayer Union. What in the world is Punjab? Well, it's a, it's a city and a providence in India. And so there's these missionaries that decided that they were really encouraged by uh, John praying Hyde's life and so how he prayed for India and how God did some incredible things. So they committed themselves to be missionaries. And so those people who were committed to be missionaries in India before they went set down some principles that what they're going to do is these are the principles they're going to adhere to and make a commitment to in order to prepare themselves to be used by the Lord. Here are those five principles. Questions they ask themselves. Are you praying for a quickening in your own life, in the life of your fellow workers and in the church? Uh, no, I'm just praying that um, God will bless me and meet all my felt needs. Well, welcome to church in the 21st century. Are you longing for a greater power of the Holy Spirit in your own life and work? Or are you convinced that you can, and are you convinced that you cannot go on without this power? What's amazing is how much work is done in the name of Christ in America, in the West, under the power of the flesh. Will you pray that you may not be ashamed of Jesus? That's a prayer you ought to have when you get out of the car and go to Walmart and buy some groceries. Give me every opportunity not to be ashamed of you, Lord. Do you believe that prayer is a great means for securing a spiritual awakening? And if so, then you need to commit some time to prayer. Here's what they said. Their commitment was, will you sell apart one half hour each day? Just 30 minutes. We spend more time scrolling Facebook than that. As soon after noon as possible to pray for this awakening. And then are you willing to pray until the awakening comes? And they committed themselves to this. Well, those are missionaries. I don't want to be a missionary. I just want to live right here in the United States. And those people lived like 125 years ago. I, I'm, I'm, that's, I can't even relate to that. Okay. Well, how about the Fellowship of the Burning Heart? This is something that happened in the United States of America. And this is something that happened with some people you might recognize, like Bill Bright and Billy Graham and Richard Halvelson, who was the chaplain of... Uh, the uh, House of Representatives, Roy Rogers from a generation ago. These are people back in the 50s who came together and said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to commit to some principles because we want the Lord to use us in a mighty way, like he did Bill Bright and like he did Billy Graham and like he did others. These people are missionaries. They're working right here in the United States. And here's what they said. Having come to a personal belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I, assumption number one that you have, and realizing that the urgency of the hour in which we live demands the highest type of Christian discipleship, the exemplary life. I wish to unite with a band of young people offering themselves as expendable. So the world's not about me. You can just use me, Lord, until you've used me up and take me home with a vision of evangelizing the youth of the world for Jesus Christ in the shortest possible time. Therefore, I commit 
to the principle that Christian discipleship is sustained solely by God alone through his spirit. The more we dwell, delve into the higher Christian life, the more you'll understand this truth. And the, by the abiding life, resting in him is his way of sustaining me. Since I'm committed to that principle, here's what I pledge to do. Therefore, I pledge myself to a disciplined devotional life in which I promise through prayer, Bible study, and devotional reading to give God not less than one hour per day, one measly hour per day. One of the most prolific writers uh, of our generation is a guy named John Grisham. John Grisham's written about 50 different books, and he's got a bunch of movies. He's a I don't know, worth $400 million or something of that nature. And John Grisham had a commitment. And his commitment was, I want to write a book. And I've seen this situation and I want to write a book. And so what he did is he would get up at 4.30 every morning. So we can spend an hour to an hour and a half alone, which means he probably went to bed earlier at night. He didn't get to watch the late TV shows that he wanted to. He didn't get to waste a lot of time. And so he did that. Took him a year and a half to write his first book. Still was an attorney, still tried cases, still worked first full time, but he made time for writing. You don't find time for God. You make time for God. And they recognized that. And they said, if we want to be used, one hour a day is the minimum we will give him. I am committed to the principle that Christian discipleship begins with Christian character. Can't act like a non-Christian and claim to be a Christian. Therefore, I pledge myself to holy living, that by a life of self-denial and self-discipline, I may emulate those Christ-like qualities of chastity and virtue which magnify the Lord. It's the verse that you quoted today. Those things that are pure and holy and righteous and of good repute, whatever is praiseworthy, dwell on those things, right? Number three, I'm committed to the Christian discipleship exercise itself principally in the winning of the loss to Jesus Christ. Not of writing or listening to Christian music or going to Christian movies. He called us to be witnesses of him and to make disciples of all the world. Therefore, I pledge myself to seek every possible opportunity to witness in order that I may always be engaged in winning someone to Jesus Christ. The fellowship of the burning heart. I am committed to the principle that Christian discipleship demands nothing less, nothing less than absolute 100% consecration to the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing less than yielding myself to him, to total abandonment to him. Therefore, I present my body as a living sacrifice utterly abandoned to God. By this commitment, I desire that God's perfect will shall find complete expression in my life, and I shall offer myself in all sobriety to be expendable for Christ Jesus. Expendable for him. So this is the direction I would love for us to go. This is the direction I'm going. I am going to do my very best to try to help us as a congregation meet daily, even if we just do that on your timetable with emails and audio clips and whatever we need to do. And I'm going to ask you that you'll pray for me that I'll be able to keep up that pace because as soon as I commit to something like this, I promise you Satan will do everything to knock me off my game. He does it all the time, just like he does it with you. But these are the questions that the, this is the verse that the Lord asked me that I am asking you in closing. 
And here's what he said. It says, great multitudes went with him. And he turned almost abruptly and said to them, there was no conversation that led up to this. They're just going, they're following him. And he stopped and turned around. You need to understand who you're following. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, and his own life also, he cannot categorically, period, be my disciple. What? How, how, do I, how do I do that? And you know what? The most painful one here isn't hating my mother, father, brother, sister. The most painful one is my own life. And so he says this, and whoever does not bear his cross, they knew exactly what that meant. It was an instrument of excruciating death. Cannot categorically, period, be my disciple. Implied question here. Now, crowd following me, do you want to be my disciple? Oh, uh, yeah, we do. Okay. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost? Whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all those see it and begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. This guy calls himself a Christian, but it got too hot in the kitchen, and he quit. This guy calls himself a believer in Christ, made commitments to live a Christ-like life until the movie he wanted to see came out, and then he chucked all that out the window. This guy claims to be something, but he's not. Or what king? going to war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. I wonder if when we gave a gospel presentation, if it would be wise on our part to bring these verses up. Before you accept Christ, you need to understand that his rules are all or nothing. His rules are total surrender. Now you have an enemy that's going to eat your lunch. Now you're either going to shine bright for him or you're going to be a tool in the hands of Satan. Go and see that claim, guy claimed to be a Christian and look at his life. And here's how he finishes that up. Sums it all up. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake, abandon, walk away from all that he has, cannot categorically under any circumstances be my disciple. First thing comes into our mind living in the West is money. Walk away with everything he has. When they talk about no, quitting my job and, and losing my house and giving my cars away. Oh, no, no. Why do we always think it's money? Because that's the most important thing to us. But the most important prized possession that you have is you. You will do anything for you. You will spare no expense for you because I'm the same way with me. We always want to take care of us first. And so why don't you view it that way? Whoever does not forsake the thing that he prizes the most, you cannot be my disciple. If you read Oswald Chambers, if you read Andrew Murray, if you read some of the incredible writing back during the Philadelphia church age, they always talked about absolute surrender. 
They also they talked about giving yourself and yielding yourself to someone else because they say everything in life is surrender, except when it comes to us in Christ. Carol has got her pad and she's got a pen in her hand and she's writing with that pen. And that pen is absolutely surrendered to her. Absolutely. Because whatever she chooses to do with it is what that pen does. Uh, that pen is controlled by Carol. It's exactly what it means to be surrendered to the Lord. If the pen had a, a mind of its own, it'd be worth nothing. Everything in life surrenders to something. And what he's calling us to do is surrender to him. And once you do, we'll talk about it this week and next week. When you do, it is the key to the deeper spiritual life, which is the greatest thing we can do to prepare for anything the Lord sovereignly brings our way. Amen? Let me pray.